In this episode of The Generational Perspective, we have a conversation with Lexi Faison, the current student body president for the class of 2024 at Loyola University, Maryland. With Lexi, we discuss where this school is going that benefits its community, as well as the past that Loyola has to reckon with so that it can move forward. Make sure that you subscribe and turn notifications on so that you never miss an episode. Enjoy. So, Lexi, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody what it is your role is on campus? Sure. So I am currently the junior class president through Student Government Association. I have been class president since August of 2020. So it's been quite a while, um, but I am super excited to get into another year and see what we can do as a class here. Yeah. What about that, huh? Like uh, three to three wins, huh? With your presidential (laughs) sweeping victories. Yeah, it's definitely been like kind of crazy to think about. Um, like when I first started, like I knew I wanted to continue with SGA, but like obviously, you know, you have people that come in and they want to pursue your roles and they want to do the work that you're doing. Um, so there's so many different, I guess, backgrounds and variations of what people want to do. But I'm just really grateful that our class here kind of said, okay, like we want to work with her again. So yeah. um, I'm just really excited to have that opportunity again. I mean, that's so, why we really are unbeaten. I um, <clears throat> I do have a question. Like when you were talking about how people are competing for your position, um, how many people do you think like every year try to also compete for that position? Yeah. So I remember my first year with first year class president. It's pretty unique when you're running because yeah. that's usually the position that's most contested. So I believe I was running against four other people. So um, there are five people in total. Um, and then my, my race for sophomore class president, there was only one other person that ran. Um, and then this year I actually ran on the post and I believe the rest of the candidates that were running for positions ran unopposed, which is very unusual. Um, I know as an organization, we're trying to engage students to be more interested in SGA. And I know we like went through a whole rebranding period. Um, so I would say typically on average, maybe two or three people will run against you, but it also just depends on the year and sort of like what's going on, not only within the organization, but also on campus as well. Yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. It does make sense because like people become more and more comfortable with the idea of somebody that they know just doing the job again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet COVID fe- affected it a little bit too. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Did it? I feel like it would have definitely. I would say for the most part, and I think when a lot of my class year first came here, and this is just a general assumption, they didn't really have too much to do at home. So because of that, they were still trying to get the full college experience, which means like engagement was very, very high, I would say, um, from a virtual standpoint. Um, And then eventually, you know, we're still sort of in COVID, but also not necessarily. It's definitely gone down in terms of like the way that it's I would guess focus on campus. Um, I would say last year, definitely a COVID year, like 100%. Um, but I think once people started getting acclimated to the idea of like going to college in COVID, um, they wanted to focus their own pursuits and passions on other things that they were interested in. Um, like they didn't have to, you know, I guess dip their toe in the water when it came to like every single opportunity, if that makes sense. But like they kind of knew, like, okay, like this is what I have the ability to do. So because of that, like this is what I want to pursue instead, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make a little sense. 
So I'm sure like the loosening of the restrictions too, just made people way more comfortable as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So going off that, what are like some, I know everyone like knows what the student government association is like, whether it be at our campus or any other college for that matter, because I'm sure they're all fundamentally the same thing um, across campuses. So like what exactly do you guys like what do you focus on specifically like like I know that you send out like the class year uh newsletters like every two weeks I believe or something like that so like like on top of that like what are some of your other like things that you're trying to do to make our class year just um better overall on campus yeah so I would say as a class president you definitely focus more so on programming initiatives um and I would say the initiatives portion is more so behind closed doors um and I say that because there's been other individual projects that I've worked on aside from hosting events like for example I've been working with the counseling center to implement mental health days um and I know I was also working with our director of academic affairs to um, try to extend the ad drop period. So it's stuff like that that we're trying to do, not only for our class here, but also for the student body in general. Um, but since a lot of my focus is programming, we're trying to do events that kind of serve a purpose for our class. Um, and I've switched advisors a lot, but each advisor that I've had, they've told me, what is the purpose of what you're doing for your class year? And what does your class year want to see? Um, so, for example, um, this past year, we hosted our uh, first year sophomore dance, and that was an idea that I had for two years. I'm pretty sure like when I first started, like that was an idea that I heavily advertised just because I know like a lot of our class year missed out on prom. And I know the first year class that was also incoming, some of them also missed out on their prom as well. But we try to advertise it in a way where it's just kind of like not necessarily like a full-blown prom, but it's kind of like remembering like what we lost out on and like how we as a class year have kind of overcome that in a sense. So um, we just try to do events that sort of have like an overarching purpose to like help our class year feel comfortable. And I would say like some of the pillars of the goals that like I derived from that. Um, I know through my past platform, I talked about finding your charm. Um, so like being, I would say class of 2024 definitely has been a a lot of unique situations with COVID. Um, I know some people are still navigating, you know, what is their purpose on campus? So through that, you know, you have this specific charm or trying to find your niche. Um, and that's what a lot of the programming that we're planning on hosting, um, for the next upcoming year is going to incorporate. Um, but overall, we're just trying to make our class here feel more comfortable. Um, we want them to not have this imposter syndrome because I know, like, for me, at least, it's very surreal that we're going to our junior year. Um, it went by very quickly. Oh, 100%. And, like, I think what we also have to remember is that we didn't have a semester. We didn't have our first semester on campus. So, in a sense, it didn't really feel like we were in college for two years, but rather, like, a year and a half. I mean, no, it really has been two years now. Um, so because of that, I really just want to hone in on making sure that people are like, okay, like I'm a loyal Greyhound, like I belong here. And th- that's how we're going to try to foster th- some of our goals through our events. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. I mean, that's all good stuff, honestly, trying to help everybody. Cause I know like, especially with our school and me and Mac have talked about this a lot on our podcast about how it's very like, everyone has their own close-knit friend groups and it's very like it's very clicky for lack of yeah for lack of a better word it's very clicky so like some people are um 
just unable to find that the, their own click for lack of again lack of a better word um so like they need events and they need ways for them to feel acclimated to the school year or to the school mm-hmm. in general which is why these types of events are a great thing and we had some friends too that um that came a year later than everyone whether they took a gap year or they just you know decided to uh stick with Loyola um while um like the, like the first semester of 2020 you know during the fall when it was online some people decided to uh, do online and then just travel. And so, um, well, that doesn't really matter. We are all online, but my whole point is like, well, there's some people that came to school later than everyone else. You know, when we already had our friend groups, like I already know who my roommates were. Like you, usually everyone already had like a group of like three or four, like good friends established and they would come in and like, it almost took maybe like half a semester. Um, I mean, depending on their personality, of course, but it took them a decent amount of time to like find like their friends, like, like their friends as in like what's best for them. You know what I mean? Cause it takes everyone a little bit of time to find who they really like, you know, and it's not always going to be like who you get paired with in your room. So it's going to take some like experimenting a little bit. And so for those people that come a little bit later than us, you know, and these groups have already been established, it can be really hard for them. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, that's actually a really good point. And it didn't even really think about, um, yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah. But I mean, you, you just kind of like find, your, I don't know, you find your way. I mean, I don't think it's as, as clicky as, you know, some people say it is, but, you know, it, it definitely can can look like that sometimes. I think it also depends on the friend group. Some some groups are like super, super clicky where it's almost like you have to like have a tattoo underneath your arm and like flash you like, yo, don't worry, bro. I'm in the club. And then there's some people that are just like, hey, how you doing? You want to come over like, you know, for like a lunch or something or, you know, you name it. And they're like, yeah, sure. And they'll just come over. So it's just it's different. Yeah. And I think the other thing, too, is that surprisingly, at least like I don't typically see this at a lot of colleges, but there's a lot of clusters of students that come from the same high schools. So I think because of that, and it's not like a guarantee that, yeah, it's not a guarantee (laughs) that um, you're going to stay with those people. But that automatically sort of guarantees you like some sort of association on campus. Yeah. There's a lot of students that don't have that. At least I was the only person from my high school that came there. So it's definitely um, like fish out of the water. Um, But we try to kind of like diminish those barriers. We're like, you know, like we're all class of 2024. Like that's trying, that's like what we're trying to get across. Like it's not, it's not supposed to be, you know, like you're so intertwined with your one group to the point like you're not socializing, you're not networking. Um, And that's also another component of like the programming that we were trying to do, like through COVID and post-COVID is trying to increase the opportunities to network. Um, Just because like, I know for a fact that it's difficult, at least like there's at least over 900 people in our class here. Um, There's some people that unfortunately I just still haven't talked to just because like I haven't had those spaces and the opportunities to talk to them. So trying to do those large scale events, such as like the dance that we did, like that was an opportunity to not only bring our class together, but also class of 2025 too. Um, Because more than we we realized, like they also went through a lot with um, their COVID year, their senior year of high school. So I sometimes think they even had it worse than we did because we, that all happened at the tail end of our year where they had a full high school year like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true. I mean, they, they missed everything their senior year, right? 
Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, I know that the the seniors the year below me at my high school decided to do their own prom because theirs was canceled. So they like all got together, tried to get like a charter boat on the Hudson River or something crazy. And I don't know if it worked or not, but I know that they were like at least trying to do something where their high school wouldn't. But yeah, they did like miss out I, on a lot of things. I never had a prom. Still have I. Damn, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I also did not have a prom. So I went my junior year and then that was it. Um, yeah. So. It's weird. Weird I'm things. More, this yeah, whole I'm, pandemic stuff. Looking back on it, to be honest with you, I'm more bummed that we missed the first semester of college rather than senior year. Like senior year is cool and all. But like, I would gladly give up prom to have one semester of college, especially like your first semester of college, like prom's cool and all, and it's like traditional and it's like fun. But I would so gladly like not care about that to have like a whole semester of college. You know what I mean? Because like, like, I feel like, um, and I feel like you two, obviously, as well, like, I feel very situated at Loyola with my friend group with everything on campus. I I feel like I'm very well established in the community so far socially and um on an organization level so but that's granted we also missed one semester so like what would it be like if you know we had that first semester i bet i bet that every single person would at least have like i don't know i'm just gonna make them an example 10 more friends they, they might have 15 more experiences in a certain building and then like you know just so many other things you know like if you really just like add up all the things that you acquire over one semester and then add it on to what we already have right now, it's kind of like it blows your mind a little bit. That is a really good point. And especially um, that was something that we really focused on in the beginning of sophomore year because we had our sophomore kickoff week, which was supposed to be in lieu of like not having our Messina events. Um, like, for example, like Bag Attack, that's supposed to be a Messina event that we were supposed to have as first year. So it's one of the first things that you do when you get to campus. Um, but unfortunately, like that's something that we were able to host in our sophomore year, which is great, but it's just it's not the same, um, which is really unfortunate. And I think that's something that also gets lost in translation a lot about our class year, because I remember reaching out to Messina, um, just like a little tidbit. And I was like, hey, like, you know, we missed out on a lot of this stuff that happened. Like, how can we build that up or bring it back in some capacity? And I really didn't get a lot of receptiveness towards that, unfortunately, which was like surprising to me because, you know, the first semester is probably your most important semester. Um, I would do anything to have the opportunity to host events. And, you know, we did virtual events and it was fine, but it's it's hard to bond over a screen. It's almost impossible in some cases, and especially, you know, when we were sitting in classes for hours and then, you know, we're expected to like go to these events on Zoom again at like 7 and 9 p.m. It's just it's unrealistic. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's it's because like even when I remember I was sitting exactly right here for all my uh classes and I would just Dang. zone out like I have like or like just not even pay attention like I have my Xbox is right over there like I just be like oh like playing Xbox but like also because it's like you're you're it's you lose the charm of being in the classroom when it's just on a screen mm-hmm. there's so much there's so many more distractions it's very it's way harder to engage so when that come when like you're on a screen for classes and stuff like that why would you do that for actual social events as well? Because it, there's the charm isn't there. Yeah. I think the biggest thing about being in the classroom is that you're held accountable. Like you can't just doze off and like look like an idiot or just like play Xbox, you know? Cause like, that's just disrespectful to the professor. And like on top of that, like, it's just awkward. Like you don't want to be that one kid. You know what I mean? You kind of want to go with the flow, 
And so like, I think you're held a lot more accountable. Like you're definitely expected to act a certain way. And, to, and even if it's super boring, you know, we've just all learned our own ways to just like sit there and like daydream, but at least you're not like just doing other stuff like we would like on Zoom. So. Yeah. And I would say the same thing translates over to SGA too. Cause like at first it was just like, no one really knew what to do. And especially me going as a first year. So like the first year class president is the only person that sits on exec board um, as a first year. So going into that, it was definitely really intimidating because all these people already knew each other. And then everyone was very nice and very welcoming. Um, But I just never really had like a set expectation that that made sense. Um, And that also can translate back to what we were just talking about. But um, my first year, it was kind of just like, here's this position, do what you want with it. Um, And like, obviously um, that changed over time. And I was also to change that over time um, to adhere to different standards, standards of my own, but also standards of my class year too. Um, I feel like in person, it's definitely, it's definitely easier to hold yourself accountable um, if you're hitting those marks and if you're not hitting those marks. And I'll be honest, there's times where I was just disappointed with myself um, and not being able to accomplish certain things. But I also realized that because of the restrictions that we still had, a lot of it is still a work in progress. Um, but we're trying to stay on top of those things and not just let them like kind of go to waste. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Well, hopefully um, we never have to worry about that COVID stuff, like with the restrictions again, because I don't know, I feel like the way that the country is going right now it's just everyone's like we're kind of at the tail end of this overall like even though like the numbers are going up it's not as bad as it was two years ago even one year ago so i think hopefully i'm knock on wood we don't have those zoom restrictions put back in place or anything like that i feel like we're also mentally tapped out like even if the numbers still still started even if the numbers um started to uh, rise again i feel like there's gonna be like at least like a quarter of the nation or maybe more that's just like man this shit you know we're not gonna i don't give a fuck about this stuff anymore like at this point it's survival of fittest i'm not gonna like waste another three years of my life you know waiting on this stuff so i think like people are just checked out like they're done you know yeah and i actually i just had covid um i tested positive on june 25th and uh, you know i was notifying people and um it was kind of just like i went about my life normally except I was just doing my stuff online um so I would definitely say like I guess culturally like we're definitely at the tail end of it just because like if you have COVID it's just like okay like a lot yeah. of people had a COVID at this point so it's just kind of like just go about what yeah. you're doing so and I'm sure and I'm sure you it wasn't even that bad when you had it probably right like it was just like was the it, was that the first time you got it or the second or third that was my first time oh, oh really um, yeah, and it was surprising because I had never been... Well, I was exposed, like, over 15 times this past semester, so how I didn't get it beforehand, I don't know. Um, but that was my first time having it, and it wasn't super bad. I was definitely, like, very fatigued for, like... Even, like, after I had it, I was super, super fatigued, um, dealt with fevers and, like, a really bad cough. Um, but I... Like, after, like, a month, um, or it's been, like, almost a month now, like, I feel perfectly fine, so... Yeah. Did you lose any of like the the common uh, themes? Like, did you ever like lose your taste, smell, any of that? Surprisingly, no. Um, same. Same. Yeah. And the only reason why I kind of figured I had COVID is because like I was feeling like a lot of aches, a lot of chills. And then um, 
I got back from a trip and I took a nap and I woke back up and I had a fever and I was like, this is probably it. So I tested positive after that. Yeah, I had a lot of aches when I had COVID. <clears throat> I got it in April of um, our f- freshman year. Yeah, mm-hmm. April of our freshman year. We all got it together. That was kind of funny, actually. <clears throat> it was like a whole group of us. I had it. Um, but I got a lot of aches. Like when I got out of the shower, I would, my, my skin would be super sensitive. And when I like like dry off with a towel, like the towel like hurt, like like my 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 skin and my like my joints were super achy. That was like the only thing that like really like annoyed me. I, I didn't like lose my taste. I didn't lose smell. None of that. It's just like I got like all achy. I felt all old all of a sudden. Like there's I just got like arthritis overnight or something. Yeah, and I know April of our freshman year was actually super chaotic. So we actually did have a few SGA events planned, and then I think the majority of our board tested positive. Um, so it's also just like that adaptability factor too. Like even now, like you never know who's going to test positive and when. Um, especially with an SGA, you know, it's a seventy-person organization, so you never know what's going to come up or what's going to happen next. Jeez, I never thought. I never realized it was that many people that were involved in it. Yeah, because, you know, you have all your class presidents and usually there's two junior because they usually go abroad and I'm not going abroad. So I just remember myself. Um, and then you have your assemblies, which is six people. And then you, you have your senators, which is three people per, per class year. And then you have your executive board. So that's compiled of directors and um, directors, class presidents, and then also the big three. So the student body president and the two vice presidents. How often do you... um? Uh, collaborate and or talk to other class presidents or anyone of any uh, rank, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, how often do you speak with them? Because I feel like, you know, if you have 2025 class president and you and she has her agenda for her class and you have your agenda, you're going to try to find some sort of agenda where you can like um, where they can add on top of each other, where they can like collaborate in a, in a way, you know? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so my first year of collaboration just didn't happen. It was just not a thing because of COVID. And then sophomore year, that was definitely a conversation I tried to keep bringing up um, just because I felt like, and I was talking to the vice president of social affairs about this because like all the class presidents are in their cabinet. Um, there should have definitely been more class president collaboration other than what um, Chris Lepresti and I were doing. Um, so that was definitely a conversation it just didn't typically happen last year because also the other thing you have to take in consideration is kind of like the nature of the events that were taking place so for example the seniors have their 50s um and they do that i think maybe every month or every two months but we wouldn't collaborate with them on that because that's just a long-term project that they've been working on for a while now um, and it wouldn't make sense for, you know, let's say like our junior class, like participate in 250s because it's specifically for the seniors. Um, but I know this year we're definitely trying to increase the collaboration aspect with the class presidents in particular. Um, we just moved our assembly meetings. So basically they're all at the same time, but they're in different rooms. So we can sort of go back and forth. Like we have a space where we can go back and forth and be like, oh, you're hosting this event. Like we had this idea, like, let's see where we can collaborate on that. And also it's about conserving resources too, because each class here has their own budget. And um, we don't want to, I don't want to say waste the budget, but we want to use it smartly, if that makes sense. So like if there's the opportunity to collaborate and to conserve funds, that's something that we will do. Um, just because like also like in the future, if you have an, another event that's coming up and you want to invest a lot in that, you want to see what you can save now. 
Um, and then in terms of collaboration with other SGA people, um, so I've just taken my own personal endeavors at this point. Um, like, for example, like I said, I was working with the director of academic affairs because um, I know there was an, a conversation last year um, about reinstating masks. Um, and I think this was like pretty late in the year. So um, there was a lot of discourse about how that information was given to the student body and how it was like very last minute. Um, so I spoke to them about it and I said, because um, I sit on a certain committee with the administrators. So I said that if that's we shouldn't have received it through an email last minute. I don't think that was the proper way to do it. Um, because this was information that they had been sitting on for a while now. So why they gave it out solely, I don't know. Um, but then we had the opportunity to collaborate on like, what would we like to see in terms of steps that are taken to communicate with the student body and get their input on things? Because I will admit, student body is going to have different opinions no matter what. You can do everything right. There's still going to be a different opinion, but you should at least try to get insight of those opinions and where the student body is at. That's the most important thing. If we're not if we're not communicating with our constituents, then who are we to say we're student leaders? We're not. Yeah. Um, and then I know I was also talking about, so I was actually working with Andrew Cherry, who's one of our senators. Um, and this is just a general idea that we had, um, but we wanted to try to in implement um, mental health days on campus. So I know a lot of campuses do um, try to achieve this. And we actually spoke with the director of the counseling center. Um, but because of Loyal already having their, I guess, as students, we have to attend a certain amount of classes in order to receive the credits. Um, so at the time that we proposed the idea, it was already too late to try to implement something for that semester. But we're potentially looking into our senior year to implement something like that. Um, and then the idea, this was just kind of like my own general idea, but I've also been looking at other schools as well. Um, just having two days in the semester and it's just general days across campus where you don't go to class. There's activities going on, on the campus, counseling centers involved. So you can use that day to your own leisure. Um, you don't have to necessarily go to these events, but you can take the day to do what you need to do. Um, so oh, I would just say like for the most part, like the collaboration is just kind of like on your own merit. You kind of have to take those steps to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's also something I've been speaking about, um, to SGA, you know, we have a lot of people that overlap in a lot of different departments. So because of that, um, we've, I know last year was kind of like, like I said, it was a rebranding year, but it was also kind of like an audit year as well, like looking at who was doing what and how can we kind of mesh together the ideas that they have so um those are just the two things that come up off the top of my head but i'm sure there's more that i haven't addressed do you ever find yourself and you don't have to get into this if you don't want to if you want to get yourself in trouble but like do you ever find yourself having a hard time collaborating with certain individuals like you know obviously you don't have to say things like say names or whatever but like do you ever just find yourself like how is every how is anything going to get done if you know like you just have a hard time with some people Oh, 100%. I'll be honest about that. Um, and it, sometimes it's even people that are on my own board, which is very disappointing. Because, um, you know, I would say for the most part, like, within SGA, you obviously have your own class year. Um, and then some people are like directors on the board, and then some people are assembly and senate. Um, and it's unfortunate, because, you know, we're supposed to be sticking together and bonding together and like seeing how we as a class year can grow stronger through the separate roles that we're in. 
Um, but also in general, I have been met with um, some resistance to collaborate. And I think it's just kind of surrounding whether the idea, whether the idea is viable or not. Um, and like, personally, I don't think you can determine that just by a conversation. I think you need to do more research into it. Um, but at the end of the day, I would say for the most part, my collaboration efforts have been well received, but there have been certain occasions where like I received like not the best feedback or not the best or didn't have the best conversation about um, trying to collaborate on an idea that I had. Okay. Yeah. That mental health day thing is interesting because I remember, I think it was like last October, um, all the faculty got emails about students who were some of them going to the hospital, some of them, like just all these people basically freaking out on campus. And I remember, um, like, yeah, yeah, it sounds like a stupid question, but is that real? That happened. According to my professor, I don't know if you've had Dr. Beverly and Lexi, but um, he was like, he read the email out loud in class and he was like, guys, what's going on with you? Like, what's wrong? He's like, you all. (laughs) And so like, so like that whole mental health day thing um, feels like it would make sense with people like, like people who are just like struggling and just overloaded, overworked and just like need a break because again, with the whole COVID thing, um, people even even 18 months on like people are still having a hard time adjusting because like that whole 18 month period that we were in COVID I would say that's like the same time period we've been on campus in person now so Mm -hmm. it's like it's like you know they're kind of like evening out now but even still um people just have a hard time adjusting to that reality when they've been doing something being isolated all that stuff for such a long period of time it's also a good point you brought up too Lexi about how um you said like even if people don't want to take part in the activities that they can still have a day to themselves to, to, to participate or do whatever they need. That's good for them. Cause there's going to be some people that just don't want to be in like larger social groups, mm-hmm. or maybe they're just like socially anxious or they just simply just don't want to do those activities, but it still gives them a day to like play a sport or like go to a friend's place or like go downtown. You know what I mean? So like, and that's still beneficial to them. So it's like the, the, um, like it, it's a broad, it, it helps out everyone regardless of where they come from. So yeah, that's, that's one good thing about it. Yeah. And Aiden, your point to um, like the co- like transitioning from COVID, that was kind of like the main premise of what Andrew and I were trying to get at. Um, because I know when a lot of students were coming back to campus and I just heard this through general conversation, a lot of them were vocalizing that their transition was even harder just because they, you have to keep in mind, like we were taking classes at a reduced rate, right? So when you go back to just automatically piling everything on and not considering the transition of the curriculum, that's where it becomes a little overbearing. Um, But yeah, these mental health days, I'm really hopeful that Loyola does take a step towards that. Um, and I'll just say, uh, loyal is never the first to do anything, but they're never the last to do anything. Um, so I'm hopeful that they will consider the idea. And then something else that we were also considering off of that, um, there are Jesuit schools that take one hour in the day where absolutely nothing is going on. And typically it's during a lunch hour. So if they were looking for something that's like of a Jesuit value, that's something else that we would try to propose, just because it is a common practice that does take place at other Jesuit institutions. So we can use them as an example. Um, And even if like we can't get the mental health days, at least there's like an alternative proposal in place. 
So. Yeah, I I really do think that's a great idea overall. So do I. Like seriously, I think it would be great to implement something like that on a wider scale because it's just like yeah, I can I I know of schools that also do that, like schools that my friends attend, and I mean a lot of cultures do that too. Generally, like like that even like the midday hour thing that's a siesta in like half the world. You know what I mean? Like so, like right. a lot of people just are used to that, and like that's the thing with like. I, I guess people on campus who are meeting you with resistance aren't attuned to that idea because that's just not something that's in our culture in general here in America. Right. So, um, yeah, I think naturally for them, it would be harder for them to understand why we would need that, but they're also just like not in our shoes. So like they wouldn't even know. And I think as college students, it's definitely hard for us to stop just because, you know, we're held to a higher standard, obviously, outside of high school. Um, but we're surrounded usually by mentors who are older than us. So because of that, I think that definitely plays a role in terms of, like, how often you're taking breaks and taking care of yourself. Um, and there are just certain situations or just certain points in the semester where you just, like, need to stop for a few hours. And that's something I've slowly been learning over time. Um, there's definitely that self-care component that gets that gets lost in translation a lot um because it's it in you said like in this country it's constantly like go 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 like you never have the opportunity to just stop and like reflect reflect and figure out what you what else you need to accomplish and that's something I've even done personally um like I would say at least every single night I try to like sit down and figure out okay like what does the rest of the week look like what did I not accomplish today that I could accomplish tomorrow? But I'm not going to hold myself to a super high standard if I didn't accomplish that thing today. Um, so a lot of it just kind of surrounds reflection and being able to stop and just being able to catch up with not only yourself, but also everything that's going on around you. Yeah, exactly. So Lexi, you mentioned to me uh, before we started recording that you're a part of a fellowship on campus. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so before I get into it, let me give some context as to how I got involved with it. Um, so basically, I sit as a student representative on the current task force that we have that looks our, at our connections to slavery and its repercussions. Um, and we have Dean Fow, we have John Keyes, who is a professor in theology. Um, we have an archivist, there are professors, there's a lot of people that sit on that committee. Um, so one of the professors, um, Dr. Carey, he reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in, interested in taking the class um, that he is teaching in the fall semester about this topic. And I said I was interested, and um, he asked me about if I was interested in the fellowship that came with it. So it wasn't a requirement that you have to do the fellowship, but um, he told me what we would be doing, which included like going to Georgetown, being in our archives, um, and basically just kind of like an, a very long-term analytical analysis um, of certain documents and um, books and everything else in between. Um, so I told him I was definitely interested. And then from there, um, we started in May. So essentially, all this is based off of the GU 272 project. And I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. Um, but there was an article published in the New York Times in 2016, actually, and it mentioned how Georgetown had been involved with an 1838 slave sale, um, and because of that, the money that they obtained from that sale was used to fund Georgetown, and some of that money went out on a loan, and we found this was in a document, 
but it said it went out on a loan to a small Jesuit school in 1852. We were founded in 1852. So from there, we figured out, okay, there needs to be some sort of work that is um, kind of like put into this. So um, when Terry Sawyer became president, he started this task force. And then from there, it kind of like created a domino effect of everything else that was created for it. Um, so it's a 10 week program and we're actually wrapping up next week, which is really crazy to think about. But um, for 10 weeks, I've been looking at documents. I've been reading pages and pages upon books. And we found that definitely a lot of context and information um, I can't say too much just because I know um, it's not confidential, but we want to make sure that all of our information is verified before putting out to the public. Um, but there have definitely been some pretty intense discoveries um, from this work. So I'm looking forward to seeing the answers that we'll be providing not only to the student body about the history of their campus, but also to the local Baltimore descendant community. Because believe it or not, they have a huge community here. And we're actually working with two of the descendants right now, um, which has been a very rewarding process um, in hearing their mindsets and their thought processes through um, the different task forces that they've worked with in the past and also how they're working with us right now. That's all interesting because, I mean, this is something that has I don't think I've ever heard about at Loyola University. This like kind of connection thing. So when you told me about it, I was like, oh wow, this would be like a really interesting thing to get into. Um, with that being said, like you said that you there's things that you can't go into detail about this just because of the checking the validity of it and whatnot. Um, but what can you say for certain about the fact that Loyola has to like basically what i'm trying to say is what is what does loyola need to do in your opinion to address these whatever it is that you're referring to and like how do you think it will be implemented in the community in a sense that's a really great question i'm really glad you asked that um so for one thing i know for a fact that if anyone's going to be looking for anything it's going to be honesty about what took place here on this campus. Um, there are various task forces across the nation, and I'm sure they'll also be trickling into eventually teaching classes about it, but the task force in general, they do exist across the, um, the country. Um, even Harvard just opened up a new one. They have a $100 million endowment. Um, so I know what a lot of people are looking for from this, and I guess specifically from Loyola is honesty about what happened and not sugarcoating the story of how this campus came to be. Um, it's definitely a difficult topic to talk about just because there are um, things that did take place that kind of shine a light as to how the Jesuits were operating back then. Um, and I know a lot of people have their own ind individual thoughts about the Jesuits, but um, the information that we'll eventually be putting out is concrete facts that can't really be disputed um i'm sorry can you repeat the other half of your question what do you think that the um like school needs to do in order to move forward essentially yeah so um off the top of my head i think there just needs to be public acknowledgments um and not just from like a secondhand source like writing an email like there needs to be 
some sort of very public, I don't want to call it a decree, but rather like just some, like a public announcement saying this is what happened on our campus. Um, and then consulting not only our task force, but also the descending community about what we can do. Because, you know, I can say I want to see this, but, you know, I don't know if I'm a descendant or not um, from this particular sale. So I can't really say what I would like to see to acknowledge my ancestors that went through this. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter um, what I want based on the work that I have done. It matters what they want based off the answers that they're receiving. And are they like, so this task force is working like in tandem with this group or is it like they're just like finding out the information from the task force? I would just say it's in tandem. If anything, sitting as a student representative versus being part of this fellowship, the fellowship is the one that's producing a lot of the records, a lot of the archives, what we're finding, what we're not finding. And we'll eventually be passing a lot of this on to the task force to help the task force accelerate their work in terms of figuring out um, like how we're going to present some sort of report, if that makes sense. Um, but I would say for the most part, like the fellowship is the one that's kind of like pulling out everything and saying like, here you go. Um, the task force just exists as a presidential task force. Um, so it's more so like on an administrative level, if that makes sense. But um, the fellowship is more like student led, I would say. Um, there's about nine of us, I believe. Um, all of us across various class years, um, but we've all been working cohesively throughout the summer, and um, we have sub-cohorts through that, and then we're tasked with focusing on specific topics. So, for example, I can say that um, I've been looking through the Greyhound a lot, which is actually like our school magazine, and I've been looking at issues dating all the way back to the 1930s. And that might not seem um, helpful, but it definitely gives context to like campus culture and like what students were doing back then and potentially um, what kind of thought processes and views that they had that may have influenced how they were networking and treating other people within the community. Um, So there's definitely a lot of, um, I would just say there is a lot of different pieces and components when it comes to this research. But it's definitely very in-depth detailed, especially, you know, when we, so I know my group, we went to Georgetown, um, I would say about a month ago now, um, because a lot of this, since it stemmed from Georgetown, we wanted to go through their archives. And surprisingly, you might not believe me, but um, they are very hesitant to let student groups in their archives, which doesn't really make sense to us considering you know they put out their findings about what took place so I don't know what else they could possibly be worried about um but we went there and you know we looked through different letters that were going to and from Georgetown and then there are also a lot of Loyola professors that would travel back and forth between Georgetown and Loyola so there definitely was a connection there but there's just so many different places where we've had to look at that definitely puts it into perspective of like how large this event impacted so many different people in so many different capacities. Are these um, like the Loyola archives, at least, are they like anyone can access them or is it just like the group, like your group? So I just asked about that to the head archivist and I know they actually sent a proposal to the Board of Education um, to allow students to access the archives. Um, It wasn't a topic of a conversation that ever came up in the past. So because of that, because um, I was actually asking about something SGA related where I was trying to pull out the archive. 
Um, and I asked as a student if I can do that. And then the head archivist told me that, um, that they're currently in the process of gaining permission from the Board of Education. And I know, um, or the trustees, I, sh- I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's because the trustees have meeting minutes, some of which do have to be sealed off. Um, and then there's also other things where it might contain a student record. So because of that, they have to be very meticulous on which archives they're handing out and what the purpose of handing it out is for. Greyhound stuff sounds interesting because I wrote a couple of things for the Greyhound, mostly just like movie reviews and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I was like, it's just because no one no one really looks at that if i'm being if i'm being completely honest like i know that the um the whole the people in charge there like the head editor carly i believe her name is um like work very hard at like publishing stuff on there and i did too but like i know when i'm posting stuff i know damn well that no one's reading it because no one no one no one cares essentially so like to to um be able to look at the past where people were way more involved with the Greyhound way more and like that was how people got their news about campus versus like emails and stuff like that I feel like that'd be kind of interesting you know yeah it is really interesting so I have a question for you Lexi so one thing that I'm I don't understand I'm not understanding what you're saying is like what exactly do you want Loyola like 2022 Loyola to do about this because like if if all this stuff is you know valid and it, it did happen and I completely believe you that it did is um, what, I mean, those were, those were with staff members that are working with Loyola in like 1852, 1930, to which none of them work here anymore. So what do you expect modern Loyola to do about this? Because modern Loyola isn't essentially the same 1852 Loyola. So how are we going to move forward from something that almost doesn't seem the same at all? I think as a campus, um, specifically from the administrator side, we can't go back and change the actions that took place against um, people of color or people that are marginalized on this campus. But from a personal standpoint, I think the only thing we can do at this point is just, well, like I said before, publicly acknowledge what took place Um, in terms of action steps. Like I said, with the descendant community, you have to take into consideration their particular side just because their direct ancestors were the one that were affected by it. And there's also that component of generational trauma that comes from that. Um, and it might some of it even stems from just like not acknowledging that this atrocity took place. Um, and it's hard just because I think the overarching purpose of this research and of this work is to just bring awareness to it. Um, Because while a lot of this was, I would say for the most part, a lot of this is public information. It wasn't information that was broadcasted and nor did I expect it to be broadcasted because Loyola doesn't like to be embarrassed essentially. Um, So I can't answer your question to the fullest extent, but that's just because we're still trying to piece everything together um, on our side and then figure out what will come through that. And I know there was a step that Georgetown took where um, they actually offered full tuition to anyone that was a descendant of the people that they sold from the 1838 sale. Um, but that's just something that I don't know, with, is it within our means? Um, just because we weren't necessarily directly responsible for the sale. 
Um, so figuring out how Loyola can contribute to moving forward from what took place on campus in 1852 and beyond that is a difficult question. Um, there is also another thing, um, and I'll just allude to our school callers for now, just because like I know it's something that's um, been a conversation but I can't fully talk about right now. Um, you may just see some general changes with the way loyal is branding itself in terms of colors and student buildings, um, in terms of the names of student buildings. Yeah. Um, so those are just some things that come up to the top of my head. And I know that doesn't answer the question to the fullest extent. That's okay. And this is also a two-year project as well. So a lot of it will be wrapping up and I would say, um, probably spring of 2024 um, because the task force started fall of actually no the task force started spring of 2021 so we'll probably be wrapping up um I would say within the next spring but yeah we'll see what comes from that um but there's definitely there's a, definitely a lot of little things that we're going to be trying to address as best as we possibly can and just trying to give the student body also context because a lot of it, whether or not students realize it, like this is how we came to be as a campus and our student body is associated with that in the sense of like this is how we progress from then to now. Yeah. So how are we as students aware of kind of like our come up, if that makes sense? Yeah, like, no, no. We're not related to the people that went here, but yeah. by proxy, they were the people that were our student body at one point. So how do we shift the culture to be more accepting? How do we shift yeah. the culture to be more acknowledging and aware of like what took place and being able to come to Lil and say, okay, this is what happened before me this is what I can do to make a change on this campus. Yeah. So I, I, have a, I have a question I think a lot of people think about too. And this isn't like getting political or anything. This is just like a genuine discussion. Yeah. So like, at what point do people like, I want to talk about the tuition thing with two at Georgetown, like who funds that? Like, how does that even work? Um, yeah. I mean, I would hope that it comes out of Georgetown pockets. I'm in Georgetown's pockets, you know, because I mean, if I, I don't know. But anyway, um, one thing is like, because I think it's extremely important to acknowledge what happened. Like, I think just sweeping stuff underneath the rug in history is terrible. And to, and to the victims that that happened to is fucked up. Like, they don't deserve that. And their kids don't deserve that. And even any effect past that, they don't deserve that. You know, so just the bare minimum acknowledgement is important. But one thing that I, I'm curious about, and I think a lot of people are also curious about, before getting too, like, heat of a topic, is, like, at what point do do we have to say, like, let's acknowledge what happened in like the, in the whatever period. And then like, obviously that's going to have a trickle effect, but at what point do we, do we have to say like, okay, so what, what do we do to like move on from that? Cause I mean, are we going to, are we like, is like, what's the, like, at what point, like, are we going to continue to keep on like, um, like seeing the future as in putting this group in a negative position, like forever, like when are we going to stop and then like try to move forward? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm, and I know that's so hard to say, like, that's, that's yeah. so controversial of a topic, but I'm saying this in, in like on behalf of like black communities, like where, where will they, where will they be able to just not to detach 
to detach their past from their future in a way where they can be whoever they want to be, you know, because that's a hard, that's a hard question to ask. Yeah. And I can speak from a personal standpoint because my great, great grandparents were sharecroppers. Um, so I do have a past with um, family members that either were sharecroppers or were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because, and I'm just going to say this on a general standpoint, it is hard to move forward from something of that nature when you have systemic racial institutions that exist that try to prevent you um, as a descendant from excelling in society. Um, I'm not saying Loyola exists as a systemic institution, um, like form of racism, but it's hard for me to walk this campus sometimes and think about even if I'm not a descendant of those people, think about the people that of my racial group that were forced to work in this capacity. And there's no sort of even an acknowledgement of that in the first place. Um, I just think that it's just, it's so difficult to answer that question. Cause like, I don't know, in all honesty, I don't know if um, people ever move forward from that. Yeah. I don't know if people ever say, oh, okay, like they did this research, they found this information. Okay, we're good. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think I think it's just the action itself of conducting this research is important. And it does show that we're trying to put effort into finding information about this. But even uncovering that information can um, kind of ignite the generational trauma that is there. Yeah. Um, because I, one of the descendants that we did talk to, um, she was notified that she was a descendant of one of the GU-272 um, enslaved people. She was angry. She was upset. And um, that's just something that you can't really move forward from just solely because, you know, for some people, that's their family that suffered, yeah. had to go through those experiences and they can't go back and they can't change that or they can't mm-hmm. like they can't do anything about that. Yeah. Um I think you can move forward in the capacity of saying like okay, this is how I want to contribute to this project. Um what can I do for my own personal journey to move forward from that because everyone's going to move forward at their own different pace. There's always going to be anger and there's always going to be people who can't necessarily think like okay, like I'm I'm over this part of my history, my family history. Um, In terms of Loyola, though, I just don't know how we as a campus, in terms of student body administrators and anyone that is associated with what the campus has done, I just don't know if there's a point where I think it's always going to be a present um, sort of feeling. I think it's always going to be that type of thing where it's like, it's unsettling, it's uneasy, but it's something that is part of our history. Um, so because of that, it's just something that is just going to continuously be there, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a hard topic to talk, talk about, that's for sure. I'm eager for to hear about this now when the findings come out. I'm very eager, in all honesty. Um, do you know if... Uh, like you mentioned like the name built changes that could potentially come from this do you think that would be happening sooner than next spring like 23 
So I know from this fellowship, we as a group sat down, we made a list of things that have the potential to be written about or talked about. Um, And I know, to my knowledge, there is a committee that exists for looking at the names of buildings at Loyola, which I know sounds super niche, but um, it does exist. So I believe there's probably going to be a set of proposals, one of which that I'm planning on submitting to change the name of a few buildings. I hope it's in, it's I hope it's in within the next year and a half. Um I am very like cautious and aware of like this information being put out because you have to keep in mind some of our buildings um that were named after people, those descendants still live in Maryland. Um so the backlash that you could receive um might not be that great. Um, but we are hoping within the next probably year and a half, maybe two years that these buildings are renamed. And like, if we're being realistic, like it's not just an overnight, like let's just change the name. It's a whole rebranding process that has to take place. Thank you for coming and talking about this, Lexi. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok, as well as subscribe on YouTube so that you can watch the corresponding videos. Your continued support is appreciated, and I have a lot of fun things in store for the future. Have a great rest of your day.